Barbara McClintock doesn't hear the phone ring outside of her laboratory. She's been busy working with graduate students in her makeshift lab. As they peer over their genetic samples, try to see life in their microscopes, the phone rings again. One of the students groans and goes to answer it. A moment later, the student returns, telling Barbara she has just won the Nobel Prize. Brains of people are more interesting than the looks, I think. Electric power is everywhere present in a limited point of view. Jane, if you really want something and you work hard and you take advantage of opportunity and you never give up. You're listening to Human Angle, a podcast that focuses on the hidden lives of scientists asking what makes them human. I'm your co-host, Kenna Castleberry, here with my other co-host, Kim Castleberry. Thank you, Kenna, and thank you to all of our listeners. If you are a new listener to our show, you can find it on all your favorite platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and other places. Be sure to like and subscribe. This is one of our last episodes for the show. As we slowly wind the podcast down, we appreciate all you've done in following our journey, and we hope you'll continue to re-listen to episodes. Today's episode is about Barbara McClintock, a scientist who was awarded the 1983 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. She produced the first genetic map of maize, or corn, and showed that certain parts of the genetic chromosome linked to certain traits. In this episode, we'll be covering her early life, her work in discoveries, and her later years. So Barbara McClintock was born to Eleanor McClintock on June 16, 1902 in Hartford, Connecticut, the third of four children born to homeopathic physician parents. When she was a young girl, her parents determined that Eleanor, a feminine and delicate name, was not appropriate for her and then chose Barbara instead. McClintock was an independent child beginning at a very young age, a trait she later identified as her captivity to be alone. From the age of three until she began school, McClintock lived with an aunt and uncle in Brooklyn, New York, in order to reduce the financial burden on her parents while her father established his medical practice. She was described as a solitary and independent child. She was close to her father, but had a difficult relationship with her mother. Tensions began when she was young. The McClintock family moved to Brooklyn in 1908, and McClintock completed her secondary education there at Erasmus Hall High School. She graduated early in 1919. She discovered her love of science and reaffirmed her solitary personality during high school. She wanted to continue her studies at Cornell University College of Agriculture. Her mother resisted sending McClintock to college for fear that she would be unmarriageable, something that was common at the time. McClintock was almost prevented from starting college, but her father allowed her just before registration began and she matriculated in at Cornell in 1919. McClintock began her studies at Cornell College of Agriculture in 1919, and there she participated in student government and was invited to join a sorority, though she soon realized that she preferred not to join formal organizations. Instead, McClintock took up music, specifically jazz. 
She was she studied botany, receiving a bachelor's in science in 1923. Her interest in genetics began when she took her first course in that field in 1921. The course was based on a similar one offered at Harvard University and was taught by C.B. Hutchinson, a plant breeder and geneticist. Hutchinson was impressed by McClintock's interest and telephoned to invite her to participate in the graduate genetics course at Cornell in 1922. McClintock pointed to Hutchinson's invitation as a catalyst for her interest in genetics. Quote, Obviously, this telephone call cast the die for my future. I remained with genetics thereafter, end quote. Although this has been reported that women could not major in genetics at Cornell, and therefore her MS and PhD, earned in 1925 and 1927 respectively, were officially awarded in botany, recent research has revealed that women were permitted to earn graduate degrees in Cornell's plant breeding department during the time that McClintock was a student at Cornell. McClintock decided to specialize in cytogenetics as part of a genetics that looked at how chromosomes relate to cell behavior. McClintock's cygenetic research focused on developing ways to visualize and characterize maize chromosomes. This particular part of her work influenced a generation of students as it was included in most textbooks. She also developed a technique using carmine staining to visualize maize chromosomes and showed for the first time morphology of the 10 maize chromosomes. This discovery was made because she observed the cells of the mic microspore as opposed to the root tip. Staining is really hard. It is. I can just tell you because one of my degrees is in botany that you have to cut the plant to be almost translucent on the microscope slide. So it's super thin, like like one and cell then, layer thick. And then do you put the stain in there? Yeah, and you have to stain it the right way. And oh, I just remember spending hours in the lab at school trying to cut them. So them like off. very detailed, mm -hmm. very yep. focused. Yep. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Staining is really hard. Staining is really hard. <laughs> By studying the morphology of the chromosomes, McClintock was able to link specific chromosome groups of traits that were inherent together. Marcus Rhodes, a co-researcher, noted that McClintock's 1929 genetic paper on the characterization of triploid maize chromosomes triggered scientific interest in maize cytogenics and attributed to her 10 of the 17 significant advances in the field that was made by Cornell scientists between 1929 and 1935. In 1930, McClintock was the first person to describe the cross-shaped intersection of homologous chromosomes during meiosis. The following year, McClintock and Creighton proved the link between chromosomal crossover during meiosis and the recombination of genetic traits. They observed how the recombination of chromosomes seen under a microscope correlated with new traits. Until this point, it had not only been hypothesized that genetic recombination could occur during meiosis, although it had not been shown genetically. McClintock published the first genetic map of maize in 1931, showing the order of three genes on maize chromosome 9. 
McClintock's breakthrough publications and support from her colleagues led her to being awarded several postdoctoral fellowships from the National Research Council. This funding allowed her to continue to study genetics at Cornell, the University of Missouri, and the California Institute of Technology, where she worked with E.G. Anderson. She had, like, a lot of time in college. <laughs> she did a lot of degrees. <laughs> well, it seemed like that was her passion. That's what she yeah. liked, yeah. Right. Time flies when mm. you're having fun, It's right? true. It's true. During the summers of 1931 and 1932, she worked at the University of Missouri with geneticist Lewis Stadler, who introduced her to the use of x-rays as a mutagen. Exposure to x-rays can increase the rate of mutation above the natural background level, making it a powerful research tool for genetics. Through her work with x-ray mutagenized maize, she identified ring chromosomes which form when the ends of a single chromosome fuse together after radiation damage. During the same period, McClintock hypothesized that the tips of chromosomes are protected by telomeres. McClintock received a fellowship from the Guggenheim Foundation that made possible six months of training in Germany during 1933 and 1934. She left Germany early amongst mounting political tensions in Europe and returned to Cornell, remaining there until 1936, when she assisted as assistant professorship offered to her by Louis Statler in the Department of Botany at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Although her research was progressing at Missouri, McClintock was not satisfied with her position at the university. She recalled being excluded from faculty meetings and was not made aware of positions available at other institutions. She once wrote, quote, I have decided that I must look for another job. As far as I can make out, there's nothing more for me here. I'm an assistant professor at $3,000, and I feel sure that this is the limit for me, end quote. Recent evidence reveals that McClintock more likely decided to leave Missouri because she lost trust in her employer and in the university administration after discovering that her job would be in jeopardy if her boss were to leave for Caltech, as he had considered doing. Hmm. In early 1941, she took a leave of absence from Missouri in hopes of finding a position elsewhere. She accepted a visiting professorship at Columbia University, where her former Cornell colleague Marcus Rhodes was a professor. Rhodes also offered to share his research field at Cold Spring Harbor in Long Island. In December 1941, she was offered a research position by Milislav Demerich, the newly appointed acting director of the Carnegie Institution of Washington's Department of Genetics, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. McClintock accepted his invitation despite her qualms and became a permanent member of the faculty. At Cold Spring Harbor, she was highly productive and continued her work with the breakage fusion bridge cycle, using it to substitute for x-rays as a tool for mapping new genes. In 1944, in recognition of her prominence in the field of genetics during this period, McClintock was elected to the National Academy of Sciences, only the third woman to be elected. The following year, she became the first female president of the Genetic Society of America. She continued to study genetics and made several impactful findings. In the summer of 1944 at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, McClintock began systematic studies on the mechanisms of the mosaic color patterns of maize seed and the unstable inheritance of this mosaicism. She identified two new dominant and interacting genetic loci that she named Disassociation, DS, and Activator, AC. 
She found that the disassociation did not just dissociate or cause the chromosome to break, it also had a variety of effects on neighboring genes, when the activator was also present, which included making certain stable mutations unstable. In early 1948, she made the surprising discovery that both dissociation and activator could transpose or change position on the chromosome. Her work on controlling elements and gene regulation was conceptually difficult and not immediately understood or accepted by her contemporaries. She described the reception of her research as, quote, puzzlement or even hostility, end quote. Nevertheless, McClintock continued to develop her ideas on controlling elements. She published a paper in Genetics in 1953 where she presented all her statistical data and undertook lecture tours to universities throughout the 1950s to speak about her work. Um, I think it's also important to note here, like, DNA hadn't really been discovered yet. <laughs> like, it was just starting to be she's, discovered. She's like, wait, so time, she's like, right? so of course people are going to be confused about what she's working on. They're like, what? Jeans? What? What is this? What? So, yeah. so yeah, I'm sure she was probably frustrated. In 1957, McClintock received funding from the National Academy of Sciences to start research on indigenous strains of maize in Central America and South America. She was interested in studying the evolution of maize through chromosomal changes, and being in South America would allow her to work on a larger scale. McClintock explored the chromosomal, morphological, and evolutionary characteristics of various races of maize. After extensive work in the 60s and 70s, McClintock and her collaborators published the seminal study, The Chromosomal Constitution of Races of Maize, leaving their mark on paleobotany, ethnobotany, and evolutionary biology. I'm sure that book was a real page turner. Oh. <laughs> Things kept you on, kept on every night, Sam. Right? No, it's so you couldn't go to sleep yeah, every who night. Needs a sleeping pill. Let's just pick up Dr. McClintock's book. Uh, uh, I'm I'm sure she probably would agree with that joke. <laughs> probably. <laughs> McClintock officially retired from her position at the Carnegie Institution in 1967 and was made a Distinguished Service Member of the Carnegie Institution of Washington. This honor allowed her to continue working with graduate students and colleagues in the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory as Scientist Emeritus. She lived in the town. In 1967, McClintock was awarded the Kimber Genetics Award. Three years later, she was given the National Medal of Science by President Richard Nixon in 1970. She was the first woman to be awarded the National Medal of Science. Cold Spring Harbor named a building in her honor in 1973. Most notably, she received the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1983, the first woman to win that prize unshared and the first American woman to win any unshared Nobel Prize. It was given to her by the Nobel Foundation for discovering, quote, mobile genetic elements, end quote. This was more than 30 years after she initially described the phenomenon of controlling elements. She was compared to Gregor Mendel in terms of her scientific career by the Swedish Academy of Sciences when she was awarded the prize. McClintock spent her later years post-Nobel Prize as a key leader and researcher in the field at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York. She died of natural causes in Huntington, New York on September 2, 1992 at the age of 90. She never married or had any children. That's what I wondered. It, it, it just sounds like she was really married to her career and her oh, research. Oh gosh, yeah. You know? I don't think she ever like left a college. Well, and I think being on the forefront, like she probably knew how important her research yeah. was, even though our society wasn't at that point then. Mm -hmm. She realized, oh my goodness, if you could only see what I see through the microscope, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Well, and also 
you know, research is, there's the saying, you know, science never sleeps, right? And and so research is always ongoing. So I'm sure she also saw that too, is, mm-hmm. you know, if I want to have a family and I want to have children, I have to put my research aside. And I'm sure she didn't want that. Well, thank you for listening to our episode on Barbara McClintock. This is our final episode of the show. We so appreciate all of you listeners following our journey. And thank you for all of your support. And thank you, Kenna Castleberry, (laughs) who brings to life just so many amazing people that we would never really hear of. Your research, your depth, your... Oh, this looks really interesting. Let's look at Barbara. (laughs) Right? I just, I think of all of the people in science that you've done over... Mm, over this three years now uh, yeah it's just thank you well thank you you bring to life this the sciences and you make them human <laughs>